And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he'll say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So last week, we covered the pronouncement against the fig tree and the judgment against the temple and the temple establishment. A lot of times that's called the cleansing of the temple by translators. Um, just like the entry is called the triumphal entry when it really isn't very triumphal. But, or triumphant. <laughs> but as they undoubtedly uh, set up shop again the next day, that isn't really accurate either. Seen as prophetic action of judgment heralding the imminence of the destruction of the temple, it really opens up the story. As a result, the following accounts through the first few verses of chapter 13 make a whole lot more sense. Yeshua slash Jesus has declared God's divine condemnation upon the temple and the temple hierarchy, which were the chief and the high priests, in classic Jeremiah style. As you'll probably recall, that didn't work out well for Jeremiah or any of the other prophets who tried it. And so we're going to have a prolonged clash between Yeshua and the various Jewish authorities that will lead to his crucifixion. Every leadership group will be represented uh, even the Sadducees, Sadducees, whom we have not seen up to this point. Hi, I'm Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome to Character in Context, where I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of Scripture with an eye to developing the character of the Messiah. If you prefer written material, I have five years worth of blog over at theancientbridge.com, as well as my six books available on Amazon, including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it, called Context for Kids. And I have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids. You can find the link for those on my website. Past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com, and transcripts can be had for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com. If you have kids, I also have a weekly broadcast where I teach them Bible context in a way that shows them why they can trust God and how he wants to have a relationship with them through the Messiah. And that's called Context for Kids. 
No surprise. <laughs> All scripture this week comes courtesy of the ESV, the English Standard Version, but you can follow along with whatever Bible you want. I am not the Bible police. Um, a list of my resources can be found attached to the transcript for part two of this series at theancientbridge.com. And excuse me while I just, uh, you know, it's spring in Idaho. And although most of you are probably in places that, you know, sprouted everything up a long time ago, we are just greening up around here. <laughs> And we're all mowing our lawns for the first time and woo. So I'm trying, I'm going to try not to be really offensive with my sniffing. We'll see how it goes. But, uh, we're now, and I made it worse by drinking a cup of hot tea before this. And you know, hot tea, hot soup, you don't do it when you have sinus issues. So we're now in the third day of the temple controversies. Uh, day one, we have the entry into Jerusalem where Yeshua rides into town on a dedicated donkey's colt, goes into the temple, looks around and promptly leaves. These were both prophetic actions hearkening back to what was expected when a king would return from battle, would be paraded into the city, and would culminate the day with a visit to the temple and sacrifices. Now, Yeshua, he only looked around and inspected the place, and which didn't bode well. They spent the night in Bethany. Day two, Yeshua is hungry and goes to a fig tree out of season, one with no edible fruit on it, just like the temple the night before where there should, you know, where there, there was just no good fruit there, okay? And declared judgment that no one would ever eat of that fig tree again. Then they went to the temple where Yeshua performed a prophetic act of judgment against the worldly and corrupt nature of what it had become and stayed to teach people afterward. They left and spent the night in Bethany. Day three, they got up and they made their way into Jerusalem passing the same fig tree, now withered so badly that the roots are even withered away. Now Yeshua looks toward the temple and tells them that when they pray for the wickedness within the current temple to end, the mountain tossed into the sea, okay, that they do so with clean hearts full of forgiveness. And with that, and that's my take on it, and different scholars' takes on it, different people say different things. Um, with that, we continue on to the story of what happened on this third day in Jerusalem. And so we're in um, chapter 11 still, verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. They arrived in Jerusalem and ascended onto the Temple Mount via one of the gates, and we see the first of the controversy shaping up. I will tell you some scholars see four, others five, and some six. I personally see five, so that's how I teach it. Whole lot of controversy dialogues here regardless. Good arguments for all these positions. 
Something cool to study out. Now, the verse says they came again to Jerusalem, but only he was walking about. Now, I, I don't think this means anything except to focus our attention not on the group, because the group isn't going to face the wrath of the leadership. Only Yeshua will. We have three groups coming at him. Chief priests, scribes, and elders. Why does this sound familiar? What does the very first passion prediction in Mark 8 tell us? Verse 31, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. First challenge is also delivered by the first to be identified by Yeshua as those who will reject him. Now, who are these groups? The chief priests would have been the formal temple establishment, not the priests who served two weeks every year, plus festivals. They were mostly normal, faithful guys who loved God and were thrilled to serve during their courses. They weren't wealthy or powerful. They were guys like John the Baptist's dad, Zechariah. In Acts, we will see that many later become believers in Yeshua. You might hear some folks teach that John was the only legitimate priest in the land, but that's not supported by history or by the Bible. The chief priests were bureaucrats, the people who were permanently working in the temple, who had positions of importance, and who were beholden to the high priest and all the former high priests of the family of Annas. And they had to buy the position from Rome, and so they didn't serve for life anymore. Okay, now The second group, the scribes, we've talked about them before. They were legal experts, and they were literate, putting them in the position of sometimes being Torah teachers. They worked as retainers for the rich and powerful, but drew up contracts for those who weren't too. Then we have elders. The elders were your wealthy laymen, and by laymen, I mean not priests, um, not religious figures. And we know that they will be rejecting him, but how will they do it? Well, we're not going to have to wait very long to find out. <coughs> Excuse me. Verse 28. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? So... Boom, right? I was like, they're not even, <laughs> no niceties. Yesterday you came here and you disrupted temple operations. You turned over the money changer tables. You flopped over the stools of those who sell the pigeons. You drove out everyone who was trying to buy and sell along with all the critters. You wouldn't allow anyone to carry anything through the court of the Gentiles. And then, as nice as you please, you deign to teach, and all without our approval. Who the heck do you think you are? Of course, what we want him to do is to quote from Malachi 3. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple... And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? 
for he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. <laughs> we want him to say, who am I to do these things? I'm the Lord of the temple. That's who, you know, boom, mic drop. All right. But their minds aren't even in that place at this point. Only the disciples know. And, and I mean, remember, they only know in part. And what they know in part, they really don't seem to actually get anyway. So these guys, um, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders are daring him to declare himself as a prophet sent by God. If they can do that, then they can, if they can trip him up on even the slightest matter, they can declare him false and discredit him. This is a formal inquiry, and given the specific groups mentioned, this might actually be a Sanhedrin inquiry, which would have been made up of chief priests, scribes, and elders. And so, if so, then this is a legal action, an investigation. This is a prelude to formal charges being made in the future. At this point, everything is still being done legally by the books, but that will change. Yeshua, of course, sees the trap very clearly and turns it on them. Verse 29. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. And he maybe didn't have my tone, but I, I get up at you when I read that. <laughs> Think about how I would do it, which is not how Yeshua did. So excuse me for, you know, the tone. Now, answering a question with a question was a very cultural way of dealing with others in a debate. But whenever Yeshua says something like this, you know that whoever's being asked needs to be cringing and or running for the hills. Um... But whenever he says something like this, it's always to somebody who, or a group of someone's very impressed with their own cleverness. They believe that they can successfully set and spring a trap. Probably because they're used to dealing with people from other factions, and it's all a matter of knowing and properly applying their party's talking points, okay, and knowing more than the other guy. The problem for them is that they mistake Yeshua for just another mere teacher, a fly in their collective ointment. They think he's an adversary to be conquered, all right? They aren't for one minute truly grasping the ramifications and implications of everything he has said and done. They have, you know, boiled him down to a threat to the institution that they serve. Um, and, and we'll see it today. You know, we see it today when organizations are corrupt. Okay. Church, politics, corporations, legal systems, whatever. All right. And instead of reading the writing on the wall and coming clean, you know, folks, they, they'll tend to circle the wagons and stave off the inevitable and, and protect it instead. You know, it, it may be corrupt, right? But it's theirs. It's comfortable. 
and especially if their power and their identity is bound up in it. Okay, have you ever seen like a really, really corrupt minister? All right, but the people who have been supporting him financially and listening to him and thinking he's so interesting and everything, they don't want to look like they made the wrong choice and especially not spiritually. And so even when he'll do something horrifying, a lot of to her, you know, that happens less because there are less women in, in the ministry. Um, you know, people will just go for the juggler of the victims. All right. And so none of these groups wanted this particular apple cart of the temple and the whole system tipped. And, and this is a challenge, make no mistake. If you want me to answer your two questions, then you must first answer one of mine. Sounds fair, right? Yeshua can't outright refuse to answer. I mean, who on earth would refuse to talk about who sent them and about their authority to do what they're doing? No one in the ancient world, that's for sure. Everything was about honor and power and who you were and where you came from and what you had the right to do. So he can't refuse, but he can make the stakes so high that they effectively must withdraw their question and walk away shamed. Verse 30, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Oh, man, they're in trouble now, according to Luke 7. Uh, uh, verse 28, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet he who is the least in the kingdom is greater than he. When all the people heard this and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Ow. So when the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and the leadership in general showed up at John's baptisms, it was to question him and not participate. They demanded to know who he was, according to Matthew. According to Luke, they refused his baptism, even though sinners were coming and repenting. I mean, if that isn't a sign of John's authority, then what is? But now they're on the spot. There's a huge crowd gathered for the Passover festival and there are few things more enjoyable in honor-shame cultures than watching honor challenges. Watching two men go at it verbally. A competition where one man comes out with more credibility and reputation and the other comes out with less. This is why this sort of thing was always public. They weren't looking for information. They're wanting to exalt themselves over him by tripping him up. It's like being in high school, only it's your whole life instead of only four years, which is like a nightmare for me to think about. So Yeshua puts them on the spot. They opened up this can of worms, and now if they want an answer, they're going to have to eat out of it. But the problem this poses is much bigger than, than they're seeing, okay? 
what is before them right now is the choice between rejecting or accepting John the Baptist publicly, but more than that, where people come down on the subject of John's legitimacy will very much determine whether or not they must accept Yeshua as the Messiah. After all, John was the one who pointed out Yeshua as the Messiah. More than that even, there is the larger question of accepting or rejecting God's will here and his plans in public. On the busiest week of the year, at the temple in front of a worldwide audience, these are probably Sanhedrin members, like our Supreme Court justices, only a whole lot more of them. They were probably in, in session over some legal matter when it became known that Yeshua and his disciples were present, and they might have dispatched this commission to go ask the questions they all wanted the answer to. Now, of course... You know, we also want Yeshua to tell them this, also from Malachi, but chapter 4, starting in verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Is it safe for me to express for all of us who have the benefit of a narrator how frustrating it is that he won't just come out and say it? But we have to understand that these are the people who have placed themselves atop the social hierarchy as being the, the final arbiters of the law. They know the scriptures backwards and forwards better than we do. All right. They have all the pieces, but they're determined to interpret them such a, in such a way as to support their own beliefs and their desire for vengeance against the Gentiles. They're so determined that they are willing to overlook all of the physical evidence, every eyewitness testimony, all the miracles, and all the everything that's going on. They ignored John despite his miraculous birth. Thus, they ignore John's testimony about Yeshua, and they're also ignoring all the signs and wonders of Yeshua's ministry, despite demanding to see them. Um, I think that was the Pharisees, actually. Verse 31, and they discussed it with one another, saying, oh, geez, if we say from heaven, they might not have said, oh, geez. But, you know, it's clearly, <laughs> oh, if, if we say from heaven, he'll say, then, why did you not believe him? Too late, you know. <laughs> they realize the no-win situation they've gotten themselves into. If there were Hebrew swear words... Actually, I'm sure there were. What do you mean, if there were? And, and if they weren't on top of the Temple Mount, I imagine some would have been heard on that day. They're caught and they... Know it. Yeshua isn't just talking about the baptism of John in general. He's raising the question of his own baptism. Yeshua's commissioning happened at his own baptism. John immersed him, 
and the heavens ripped open, and there was a voice, and the spirit descended like a dove. The voice identified Yeshua as God's beloved son. Yeshua, therefore, was anointed and commissioned, not with oil, but in spirit and in power. Who John is determines who Yeshua is. We can't lose sight of that. Who John is determines who Yeshua is. And, you know, so in the, in the first century, they didn't speak the Tetragrammaton anymore. And I'm not certain when they stopped doing that. By this time, they were using euphemisms instead, like heaven. Heaven is a popular substitute for Yahweh. And so when we see kingdom of Yahweh, it means, or kingdom of heaven, it means kingdom of Yahweh. Oh, boy, lost track of the time. I will be back in a few minutes. Don Rosenquist, and welcome back to this week, second half of this week's episode of Character in Context about the baptism of John and the rejection of the Messiah. Going to backtrack just a bit. Um, in the first century, they didn't speak the Tetragrammaton anymore, like I said. Um, and I have no idea when they stopped doing that, but they were using euphemisms, expressions, whatever. Um, instead, they would say, Heaven... Um, as a popular substitute for Yahweh. And so when you see the kingdom of heaven, it means kingdom of Yahweh. It doesn't mean a place, you know, off in the, you know, wherever. Um, so here, when they're debating their response from heaven means authority straight from God. They're wondering if they can safely admit that John was a prophet sent from God on the mission that he himself claimed he was on. Um, in uh, Gospel of John, one chapter one, verse twenty-three, it said, "He said, I am the voice of the the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said." But they have a problem. If they admit that, and and there's serious pressure from the crowd the Passover crowd do so. Um, then we know that they refuse to repent and be baptized by him, proving themselves to be in rebellion, which is why John called them snakes and vipers. Uh, they came to question him as to his identity, but refused to repent. All right, uh, chapter 11, verse 32, But shall we say from man... They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. I always think of the Princess Bride and the Iocane powder incident as Vizzini is explaining why he cannot choose to drink from the Dread Pirate Roberts Cup, but he also clearly cannot choose to drink from his own for a variety of philosophical reasons. If you've never watched it. I won't give away any spoilers, but it comes down to a hilarious battle of wits. And this is what they're 
doing here. It's what they're trying to do here. We can't drink from the cup that says John was a prophet because we rejected him. And we clearly can't drink from the cup that says he wasn't because the crowd is going to tear us to pieces. Temple Mount or not. Public opinion was no nothing to play with in those days. All right. I mean, it, it rarely is, but especially in honor shame societies. About a hundred years earlier, the high priest decided to divert from the way we do things during the water pouring festival at Sukkot and the entire crowd pelted him with their etrogs. If you have never held an etrog, they are as hard as a rock. Think of a lemon with a skin that's like half an inch thick and covered with lumps. I wouldn't want one etrog thrown at me, much less hundreds from below and from above. Suffice it to say, they stepped into their own trap and there was no good way out of it. So they settled for a loss of face and conceded defeat instead of creating an even worse situation. Notice real quick here that the verse says they were scared of the people, not scared of God. And that's incredibly revealing. How can religious leaders fear people more than God? Well, as the Supreme Court, you know, if they are indeed a Sanhedrin delegation, you know, their credibility to interpret and hold people accountable to the law goes only so far as the people have faith in them. As much as they were powerful, you know, and and they despised the Amha'arets whom they thought to be beneath them, without the little people, there can be no big people. Without subjects is a man a king. Without worshipers is there a priest. And so these guys were stuck in this system where they needed to maintain their positions within the system, you know, their need blinded them, okay, to the fact that the system existed for the purpose of serving God and serving mankind. They had it all wrong and upside down. They were protecting their privilege and position and forgetting that uh, those things weren't the point. The service was the point, and their positions were meant to facilitate worship and life and justice and righteousness and all that jazz. Verse 33. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. <laughs> and Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And there is so much more here than meets the eye. If they had said from heaven or from man, then Yeshua would have been nigh unstoppable. They would have become, he would have become the anointed one that John was coming before, or he would have become the people's darling, the defender of their hero, John. And I have to tell you that everyone loved John, with the exception of Herodias and these guys. Josephus even wrote about how much everyone loved him. He was no believer in Yeshua. The ruin and downfall of Herod Antipas is historically credited by the Jews as being because of 
his murder of John. John was loved. The people knew he was a prophet. They came to him in droves. They accepted the baptism of John. They accepted his preaching. They accepted his claims about his identity and accepted his call to repentance. His own disciples, some of them ended up following Yeshua instead. So this is the first time that Yeshua's enemies on the Temple Mount will be effectively silenced. When they say, we do not know, within an honor, shame context. It means that they lose the credibility with the crowd to press any more questions and arguments. Um, and if you're interested in a very simple book on honor and shame, I, I wrote a curriculum called Context for Kids, Honor and Shame in the Bible. Most of the people who read it actually are adults. Um, so because they gave a non-answer, Yeshua refuses to answer. Uh, in effect, he's refusing to show them any respect at all. In fact, at this moment, he would be an utter fool to answer. It would only give them ammunition to press their attacks further. Much better to have them trying to come up with new traps, which is exactly what they will do, but not quite yet. And I failed to mention it at the beginning, but we have another Mark and Sandwich here. This question about authority, then next week, the parable of the vineyard and the tenants, where there's a hidden question um, of ownership over the temple itself, followed up by a question about the authority of Caesar to collect taxes. As with all Mark and Sandwiches, the outsides interpret the outsides interpret the middle and vice versa. The big question here is who is the boss over the temple? And what is owed to that boss? As for now, Yeshua has left them hanging. They asked what authority, what his authority is to disrupt the temple commerce, which was, I might add, disrupting worship. And who gave him that authority? His authority came from God, of course, as the one unique beloved son, the creative logos, but if they reject the ministry of John, if they have, you know, if they've already made up their minds, okay, then they have already set up a system within which Yeshua cannot be those things. Okay, they've, they've defined it so as to exclude him automatically. Only a fool barges in and asserts, asserts their authority over such conditions. It would serve no purpose. Um, it's like they're saying, you cannot have legitimate authority because you were given it by John, who was not recognized by us, and therefore he can't be legitimate because we, as the legal experts, would know. And since we cannot verify John's authority to baptize, then we cannot endorse yours either. So, there. Plus, we still aren't sure if you're doing all this stuff because you're in league with Beelzebul anyway. Yeah. It's, yeah. So they've created a circular reasoning and an unwinnable situation. So no matter what Yeshua would come up with, they have a way out. Unless he corners them with needing to make a public declaration about everyone's favorite modern-day prophet, John. Saying anything definite is tricky. And emotions ran high every Passover. And John's murder was still fresh in their minds. 
and the royal stoa was close by at the southern end of the Temple Mount platform where Herod Antipas and his guests could sit in the shade. They are stuck between calling Herod Antipas a prophet killer in front of a large crowd with a long memory and in the presence of Roman soldiers and saying that he was just some loon in the desert. Then they have to say, you know, they have to say they don't know, or they will die, or there'll be a riot, or the soldiers will drag them before Herod. It's like, ay caramba, okay? Now, I'm going to change the subject to something super controversial. Now, please hear me out before getting angry or thinking I hate commandments, because I love them, and if you've read my books, you know that, all right? So I want to talk to you about something we were discussing today on my Facebook wall. And I wrote this back in March and I'm actually writing this last or I'm reading this the last week of April. So, you know, don't bother searching for this. So Professor Carmen Imes wrote this really epic blog last week that I will link in the transcript well, two months ago, a <laughs> link of the transcript called God's Radiant Law. And she made some really excellent observations. As a Canadian, she can look at our situation with more objectivity than we tend to be able to do here in America. But she was talking about the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and pointing out that some of it cannot coexist alongside the Ten Commandments that so many people want plastered on our courtroom walls. And it didn't take me long before I realized she's just dead right. The Ten Commandments guide our lives as believers, and I would not trade them for anything, all right? But you cannot square freedom with religion and freedom of speech with the first three commandments, declaring Yahweh our God as the only God, the only focus of worship, and outlawing the production of graven images and forbidding the misuse of his name. It's just outright incompatible with our Bill of Rights. Because of the Constitution, people have the legal right to disregard the first three commandments, and for that matter, the fourth and the fifth, telling them to remember and sanctify the Sabbath and to honor their father and mother. All right? And before I get too depressed, I'll just stop thinking about the rest of them. We wouldn't have anyone in Congress if those ones were actually... Well, okay. And there was a comment about our religious rights being stripped away. Prayer in school, publicly displaying the commandments in public. Boy, that was, yeah, <laughs> a little redundant. Um, in state-owned buildings, um, etc. You know, and it occurred to me, did we ever have the right to do that under the Constitution? Or did we assume and co-opt that right, that legal right, quote-unquote, when we had the political power to do so? Clearly, the Constitution doesn't give us that right, and so it seems clear that we Christians strong-armed it and imposed it on everyone else. It's a facet of what we call Christian nationalism, which assumed that this is a Christian nation and that as Christians we have special right that other religions should not have. Namely, that our prayers are in schools, our commandments are on the walls, our Bible quotes in state-run places. And we had it for so long that we assumed the constitutionality of it. And when secular people started noticing, they made corrections that they saw were more in line with the Constitution, you know, with what it actually allows. 
And, and we can hypothesize about original intent, but the truth is that the words are very clear. And I have no doubt that some of you think I am off my rocker now, and a few might be angry at me. But I think we need to think about this before we take on the posture of being, of believing we're persecuted when rights that do not actually exist and are actually at odds with the Constitution are taken away from us in public places. Like the rights of white people to own slaves, and I'm not comparing the two, okay, but the mindset. It was so deeply ingrained that rich Southerners actually felt persecuted when people wanted to end slavery. How about the rights of Greco-Roman men to own their children to the point where, if they threw their wives out, their wives couldn't see their children ever again? How about the opposite here in America until just a few decades ago, when no one would take seriously a man's ability to be a single parent. Kids were automatically given to their moms. Some of you may not remember it, but I sure do, and I remember the legal battles, all right, for men arguing for their rights. It was just how we thought, and we didn't question it until fathers' groups started bringing the idiocy of that position into the light of day that we even cared but we have in our minds sometimes, you know, rights that are actually privileges based on assumptions and sometimes assumptions that are just dead wrong. Um, if we were living under a... Excuse me. If we were living under a constitutional theocracy where Yahweh is king and his laws are the law of the land, then yes, no religious freedom. If you live in his country and he has given you the land to work as an inheritance, then yeah, you are required to worship him or leave. But our constitution is not that kind of document. It doesn't ban religion, but it doesn't give any one religion special rights either. We've had those rights for so long that we have begun to see them as real rights and our constitution as God-given. But would God give us a law code that allows us to break at least the five first five commandments and to call it our right to do so? I'm really concerned about this pedestal that our Constitution sits up on when we mistake it for something that God has ordained. Now, before anyone thinks I hate the Constitution, I don't. I'm grateful for it, to be honest. But I see it for what it is, and we can't claim rights for ourselves that we would deny to others. Under it, as though being Christians and Jews means the Constitution is our document, one that protects and serves our interests and desires, and not also the document of atheists and Muslims and Hindus that protects them, sometimes, frankly, from us. Goodness knows Native and uh, African Americans needed to be protected from white Christians and still do all too often. So I think the right question isn't why are our rights being eroded away and chipped away at, okay? And instead, do we really want freedom of religion or not now that we are losing our supermajority? Maybe we could even ask, has anyone else truly had freedom of religion or have they just been being humored all along while 
we assume special privileges that we deny to other groups. All right. What is God given? The Ten Commandments. What was created by a bunch of very intelligent men, all of whom were white and upper class, who had seen governmental and religious abuses and were trying to find a way out of said abuses, at least for upper class white men? Well, the Constitution, and specifically the Bill of Rights, which had to be radically altered after long and sometimes bloody struggles to end slavery, to recognize the basic humanity of people of color and women. Um, our homes need to be governed according to God's laws. The Constitution currently allows that for all citizens. The Constitution delineates our legal secular rights, and as such, it is a secular document. By its very nature, it must apply to everyone equally, or it is a sham. As it has been proven to be during some very dark days in our history, what we need to be asking ourselves is, are we wanting those rights on an equal basis with everyone else, or do we want a separate and superior set of privileges granted to Christians and Jews? Do we get our prayers in schools? Do we get our commandments on the walls of state buildings? Or do we want protections in place for the day that we might be outnumbered and the people who remember how adamant we were to remain on top might get together and get the upper hand over us with only the Bill of Rights to give us legal protections. Anyway, <laughs> if anyone's still listening, <laughs> heck, if anyone was even listening in the first place, because they don't tell me if anyone actually listens to this at all. I do appreciate you hearing me out. It isn't an easy thing to talk about or even think about. It's been challenging for me to wrap my head around over the course of the last decade as I've really started questioning a lot of the talking points that come out of my mouth without my ever really putting them to the test as to whether or not they hold water. But, you know, these are conversations that need to happen. <clears throat> Excuse me. And we shouldn't be intimidated by the subject matter, nor should we brush these sorts of questions aside. I mean, I used to be very, very political until the kids were born. And then the realities of special needs motherhood just, it gave me no time. And I eventually lost my taste for the, um, the realities of American politics, which are often very hateful. And as I grew more and more separate from all the mantras and all the things we just say, I started to question them. And whenever I would object to my questions, I noticed that I was using these arguments that would just roll off my tongue without thinking. And I had to question them as well. You know, and sometimes I, I would blush at how naive and simplistic my thinking was how black and white I was making everything so that I could be satisfied with easy answers. Easy answers that were very conveniently slanted toward my views, okay? But life is complex. The problems out there generally have no easy answers. 
So more and more, you know, I want holiness and I do want social justice too. I want freedom for me and the other guy. I want a world where we live the kind of lives out in public that cause people to see the mercy, compassion, and love of God and not the hopeless and critical nitpicking of a bunch of religious old biddies who don't care about anyone but will shout if they think that their perks are being eroded. Okay? I want a world now that looks like the world to come. Whatever won't exist then, I am not willing to turn a blind eye to now. I want his will to be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And we put up with way too much injustice being done in the here and now because our priorities are off. And we commit way too many sins as believers because our priorities are off. We really need to be concerned with both. But, you know, that's a conversation for another day. And I'm going to say something really quick. You know, while... And I didn't write this in my transcript here. When I was going through this on, on social media with other people, Andrew and I were in the car. He was driving me home from something. I can't remember. We'd gone shopping together or something. And we were talking about abortion. Or was it gun rights? It was one or the other. And he would say, well, da-da-da-da-da. And he was just talking points, okay? Talking points in support of, in support of my positions, frankly. And I said, really, is that true? And he said, yeah. I said, how do you know? And he went, his, his face went white. He couldn't justify it. He knew the mantras or, or, or he would say, well, because of such and such and such. I said, well, that's just another mantra. How do you know that one's true? The truth is that he, like most people, didn't have any depth of knowledge whatsoever. He just had all these things that he'd been trained to say, had been trained were right. And that was it. Anyway, so um, got to be careful of that. Next week, Yeshua's going to drop a nuclear weapon on the chief priest, and it is going to be ugly. See you then.